a great uh, privilege for us uh, that Jerry Bridges is here. Jerry's been with us for many, many years. And um, his friendship to our church and his life and his teaching uh, has impacted us in ways that um, I'm sure we can't even calculate. So it's a great blessing for us to have him come and uh, speak to us this morning as he comes. Let me pray for him and for us. Father in heaven, uh, we pray now uh, that uh, your spirit would be upon our friend as he comes to minister to us, uh, give him wisdom and strength. And Father, I pray that we in our listening and our hearing uh, will be ones who believe the truth and that that truth will be worked in us by your spirit in such a way that it will change our lives and therefore bring glory to you and be a blessing to others. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning to you. It's a delight to always be here at Grace. We've had a friendship going back many years. In fact, I think uh, we said over the weekend that this is the 13th weekend conference that we've had. But our my relationship goes back a lot longer than that. I remember the first time I came here was for a men's retreat someplace north of here in the wilds. <laughs> and uh, I think the indoors was about like the outdoors, but it was a great time. And so it's always great to be back and to see faces that I've come to love and appreciate over the years. And so thank you very much for the privilege of being with you today. I want us to look this morning at uh, a brief story of the life of Abraham, and we're not going to go through every detail. But basically, I want to look at Abraham's life in the sense of faith and failure, because we see both of these in the life of Abraham, and we're going to actually look at three uh, instances of Abraham's faith and two instances of his failure. If we were graphing Abraham's experience, it might look something like this. It would be a high point here to begin with, his faith, and then a low point, his failure, and then again a high point of faith, and then failure, and then finally a third high point. And so we're going to look at these all three of these high points of faith and as well as the low points of failure, and see what God has to say to us from this brief study of the life of Abraham. Let's begin by turning in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Actually, I think I'll begin reading in chapter 11 at verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 31 got my numbers reversed there. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. We can stop at that point, but we see here this first high point of Abram's faith. Because God gives Abram a command to leave your family and to go to a land which I will show you. And then with that, he gives him a promise, and I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing, and particularly all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this uh, last statement, through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, is one of the statements through Genesis where God uh, for tells the birth of the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah. The first one of those occurs in Genesis 3.15 when God, actually speaking to Satan, said that you shall bruise his heel and he shall bruise your head. And that is a very veiled reference to the conflict between Christ and Satan, which Christ won at the cross as Satan bruised his heel, so to speak, through death. But Jesus crushed his head through his death on the cross so that he won the victory over Satan at that time. That's the first account. And But we come to these very uh, vague promises all along. God does not say to Abraham how this is going to happen. He says, I will bless you, I will make you a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the remarkable thing is that Abram went. He went as God commanded now, Abram was not, uh, there were no Jews. He was the first Jew, you might say. Uh, Abram actually came out of uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, which is now would be in the nation of Iran. And uh, in Joshua 24, Joshua remarks about the fact that uh, your fathers served other gods beyond the river, the river Euphrates. So Abram was called out of idolatry. But he believed the promise of God and he obeyed the command of God. One of the, what I call, working definitions of faith, because I think that uh, faith can be defined or described in different ways depending on the context in which the faith is exercised. But in this particular situation, we might say that faith is obeying the command of God, and trusting him for the results. In fact, in the commentation, the commentator in Hebrews chapter 11 remarks on this, and let me read you what he says in Hebrews 11 uh, verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. To try to put ourselves in the position of Abraham a little bit, let's think back to the days of uh, the pilgrims when they were crossing. And of course, at that time, they, they sort of had an idea of North American. I'm not sure what they called it at that time. But they launched out and they went into a sense not knowing where they were going. They hoped they would land in the right place. But they went out because they were looking for a place where they could worship God unhindered. And so they went out not knowing where they were going. 
And oftentimes God calls us to obey him, believing that he will see us through, that he will lead us in the right direction, that he will protect us or something like that. By faith, we obey and we trust God for the results. When I was a young officer in the Navy during the Korean War, we were having, and I was in the amphibious forces where, you know, you, if you remember any of the movies about World War II where they put uh, infantry and troops on the beach and these kinds of things, and I was with one, one of those kinds of ships. And we were actually in a training operation off the coast of Japan, and we were deploying troops onto the beach, and then we were recovering them off the beach, back onto the ship and so forth. And I was in charge of the recovery process for our small ship. And we had an accident during that time. And and it was on my watch, so to speak. And um, actually, the the thing that made it a little bit dicey was, uh, and any of you who have been in the service will acknowledge this, you, you can't always follow the rules. And there's sometimes when just this, the circumstances demand that you sort of improvise. And we were improvising at that particular time because there was no way that we could bring those troops back aboard ship in the heavy seas that we were in. And so we improvised. And this accident occurred during the time when we were improvising. And I had to go, when we got back, I had to go to the higher-ups on shore and report the accident and give them, give them all of the uh, details. And so I pondered and I, I wrestled, you know, should I tell them the actual facts or should I just sort of skirt over that? And I decided that I needed to obey God and trust him for the results. And as it turned out, it worked out okay. But that's, we find ourselves oftentimes in a predicament or a situation or a challenge. And the question is, will we obey God and trust him for the results? Several years later, um, yeah, about probably about eight or nine years later, uh, the navigators asked me to take a, an assignment in Europe. I was serving at the navigator headquarters in Colorado Springs at the time, and uh, they asked me to go to Europe and serve as the administrative assistant to the Europe uh, director over there and sort of run the office and these kinds of things. The problem was that I had just turned 30 years of age. I was still single. I had no prospects. And the thought of going uh, to Europe for three years um, and being out of circulation, so to speak, was not very appealing to me. And I frankly didn't want to go. But as I prayed over it and I sought the Lord's will and surrendered my will to him, and actually the Holy Spirit used this verse of Scripture In Hebrews 11.8, by faith Abraham obeyed, and he went out not knowing where he was going. And that seemed to apply to my situation. And so I said, Lord, okay, I will obey, and I will trust you for the results. Now, during those four years that I'd worked at the Navigator office, uh, there were a number of us working there, and uh, I had met a number of very nice, single, eligible young ladies, and so um, I was, went to Europe for three years and coming back, and one of those young ladies had moved to New York City to do, help do follow-up from the 10-week Billy Graham crusade in Madison Square Garden back in the 1950s. 
And I knew she was living there, and so I wrote to her, and I asked her if she would find a reasonably priced hotel room for me in Manhattan when I was coming back because I wanted to spend a couple of days uh, sightseeing in New York City. And I put, oh, by the way, how about having lunch, uh, how about having dinner with me uh, for old time's sake? And that's all I had in mind. It was just a friendship. Little did I know that she was the one God had marked out for me. And so the night, three years after I went to Europe, the night that I returned from Europe, I had dinner with the young woman who would be my wife seven months later. By faith, you obey and you trust God for the results. And a high point, this is the first high point of Abraham's exercise of faith. He obeyed and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now remember, Abraham has come out of uh, a family and a nation of idolatry. So it isn't that Abraham had been walking with God low these many years. God had called him out. God spoke to him in a way that we do not quite understand. But nevertheless, God spoke to Abraham, made it very real to him, and said, Abraham, I want you to go out and I will bless you. But more than that, I will make you a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham goes out, and we're still in Abraham. I'm still sorry. We're still in Genesis chapter 12. So Abraham obeys God, and he goes into the land of Canaan. Now we pick up at verse 19. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister. So that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, into Pharaoh's harem, so to speak. And this, you know, is obviously a very low point in Abram's life, that after obeying God and going out into this land, not knowing where he was going, he sinks into this low point, and he asks Sarah to lie about being his sister instead of his wife. He displayed a serious moral weakness. In fact, today, when we look at what Abraham did, it's, uh, it's impossible for us to understand how Abraham could have done such an ignoble act. Not just the lie, that in itself was bad enough. But the position that he put Sarai in by lying about her and being and her being taken into uh, Pharaoh's harem. Now, we do not know whether uh, Pharaoh actually consummated a relationship with her or not. The text does not tell us on that. But certainly she was put in that possible position. And we think to ourselves, how could Abraham have possibly done this? And this was not a thing that was that people would normally do. I realize that women didn't have the status in those days that they have today. But but uh, later on, uh, another man says to Abraham, "You've done something that ought not to be done." 
And so here we see that immediately, almost immediately following, because we're still in chapter 12, immediately following this gigantic act of faith in obeying God and going out, not knowing where he's going, immediately he falls and he compromises his wife's purity. Well, let's move on to the second high point, and this is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham, uh, the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And notice these words, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the second step of faith. This is the second high point of faith in Abraham's journey with the Lord. That God promises him that he would have a son when he is now well advanced in years. He was 75 years old when he left Haran to begin with. And now he's getting along. He's into his 80s and he still has no child. And he said that this servant of mine is going to be my heir God says, no, you are going to have a son, your very own son, this shall be your heir. And Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Not the act of believing, but because he believed the promise. Now again, we have a comment on this in Romans chapter 4. One of the things that makes it easy for me to go over these three high points of faith is because in all three of them, there is a commentary on them in the New Testament. Two of them in the book of Hebrews and this one in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 4, verse, starting with verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, this is a high point of faith. He did not look at his own circumstances, but he believed the promise of God despite the unfavorable circumstances. He was fully convinced, as the text says, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He did not waver at the promise of God because he was convinced that God was able. Twice in the Old Testament, we find these words, God asking in Genesis 18:14, Is anything too hard for the Lord? And again in Jeremiah 32:26, Is anything too hard for me? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is, nothing is too hard for God. 
But oftentimes, our faith is weak because we look at a situation and we do not see how God could possibly answer that need of ours. And so we look at the circumstances and we have little faith. But God, I want to say to us today, God is still asking us that question, is anything too hard for God? I found in my own life that sometimes a need comes up, maybe it's a need within our own family or a need of a, of a friend or relative that I'm praying about, or maybe, in fact, I'm thinking right now of a relative who does not know Christ. And he's into his 60s now, and you might say, the clock is running down. And uh, for years, he has had nothing to do with God. And I pray for him almost every day. And I think, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer is nothing. I'm thinking of a man. He was a liberal Methodist minister. He went into the ministry to display his rhetorical skills. He had no love for God. He, he, was, he was basically an actor. Uh, getting up, displaying his rhetorical skills. And he pastored for many years. And in his 80s, he's lying in a hospital bed in a Catholic hospital in my hometown. And he couldn't sleep on a particular night. And as he's lying there on the opposite wall where he can see it is a backlighted crucifix. You know, the, the cross with Christ hanging on the cross. And then there's light behind it so that it's displayed. And he's lying there, mind you, he's in his 80s now, a liberal Methodist minister, never had anything to do with Christ as his Savior whatsoever. And as he lay there looking at that crucifix, it came to him, Christ died for my sins. And he accepted Christ lying on his hospital bed. 80, 80 some odd years of age. Nothing is too hard for God. So oftentimes we pray, and then we think, well, now, how can God answer this prayer? And we try to think of some rational, reasonable way that God might answer our prayer, and our faith is pretty much limited to our ability to figure out some way, some reasonable way that God might answer that prayer. You know, let's say that, uh, that uh, we are deeply in debt. And we're praying, and, you know, we can't see any way that come out. And we begin to think, well, you know, maybe, maybe Aunt Mabel has me in her will. And maybe she'll die one of these days, you know, and, and I'll get some inheritance. And from that, we'll be able to get out of debt. We're trying to figure out how God can answer our prayers. Don't do that. Just say, Lord, here is the need. I have no idea how you can answer that. The son of this Methodist minister who uh, I met several years ago and he's in full-time service with the Lord. And he told me about this incident with his father. And I'm sure that because he had become a Christian as a young man, that he had prayed for his father and had no idea how God might answer that prayer. But God had an idea. God knew what he was going to do. And so do not limit your faith to your ability to figure out how God might answer your prayer. Just believe that God can do anything that nothing is too hard for him. And so we see uh, 
the, the value of just believing in the power of God. Now, when we pray, these what I call these impossible prayer requests, or that is impossible to be answered, when we just see no human way that God could possibly answer that. Do not tie your faith, as I said, to your ability to figure it out. That doesn't mean that you know that God is going to answer, but you know that he can. There is a difference between a faith which trusts God to work in a way that we do not understand and a faith that simply says, well, I can't figure out any way that God will answer this, so I might as well give up. It's interesting that two instances um, in the book of Mark refer to people's faith. In the first one, in Mark 6, chapter 6, Jesus is in his hometown And the the scriptural account, Mark says that he could do no mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, on the face of that, that seems like that God is limited to our faith. That God is held hostage, so to speak, to our faith. Well, we know that this is simply not true. So what is Mark saying when he says he could do no mighty works there because of their unbelief? What the people in his hometown of Nazareth were exhibiting was not what we might call a shaky faith, but it was a stubborn unbelief. They refused to acknowledge who he was. They, they were stubborn in their unbelief, and so Jesus did no mighty works there. By contrast, we look in, chap- in chapter 9 of Mark, where this man comes to the disciples with his uh, demon-possessed son, and they cannot, the disciples cannot cast out the demons. And so Jesus comes down, and he encounters this situation, and the Father comes to him and says, uh, If you can, help me, or help us. And Jesus said, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. That's a similar statement to, Is anything too hard for the Lord? All things are possible to him who believes. Now, mind you, this man has brought his son to the disciples. They've tried to cast out the demon, and they were unsuccessful. And you might say, what's the next step? And then Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. And you know his response. I believe, help my unbelief. He wanted to believe. The people in Nazareth did not want to believe. They wanted to persist in their stubborn unbelief. They rejected this man, Jesus, because he was, you know, just a product of their hometown. I mean, who is this guy? We know him. He grew up. He was the son, so to speak, of Joseph. And his, his brothers and sisters are here. Who does he think he is? And so they were stubborn in their unbelief. By contrast, the father of the demon-possessed son wanted to believe. The question to us today is, do we want to believe? Or do we persist in our stubbornness thinking God cannot do that? So let's not make the mistake of limiting God's power to the ways that we can think of. I have a page in my prayer notebook called Special Request. And every item on that 
list is a seemingly impossible thing for God to do. And I've prayed over some of those requests for many years. One of them, of course, is the relative that I just mentioned a few minutes ago who's now into his 60s. And, you know, we have no idea how much longer someone like that will live. And so I have this list. There are about a dozen uh, items on this list of seemingly impossible things for God to do. Interestingly enough, after several years of no answers to any of those prayers, in the year 2010, three of them were answered. A son of a good friend of mine, 25 years old, and running just as hard as he could away from God. And he had kind of a Damascus Road experience. And he turned and he trusted in Christ. And now he's running toward Christ just as hard as he was running away from Christ. That's a breakthrough and a seemingly impossible situation. The daughter of another a pastor friend of mine, she's 22 or 23, I think she's about 24 years of age now. For eight years, she suffered from a horrible disease that the doctors weren't able to diagnose. They thought it was Lyme's disease, but seemed like a lot worse than anything like that. But um, she suffered terrible pain, hallucinations, all kinds of things from the time she was 16 until now she's about 24. And last year, all of a sudden, one day, without any medical, human medical intervention at all, one day the pain and the hallucinations and so forth stopped cold. And she's well today. Now I've got another impossible prayer request for her. I thought, well, Lord, okay, that's number one. Now here's another one. Um, She's basically lost eight years of her life. The key, crucial years of her life. Finishing high school, going through college. And so I've started to pray, Lord, somehow, would you redeem those years? Uh, There's this phrase in one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament where God says, I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. And I've sort of said, Lord, would you restore to her the years that this illness has eaten? But God can do these things when... I mean, you can believe that in eight years they had tried all the traditional classical medical um, cures or treatments and this kind of thing, and then they've gone off to this, you know, this alternative and that alternative, and nothing worked. And then one day she's home in her bed, and all of a sudden, like that, she's well. It disappeared. I'm thinking of another man who trusted Christ in prison. Now, he was incarcerated as an 18-year-old for writing a bad check, which is not too bad. You know, you might get two or three years or something. I don't know what it is. But but then he, he really got into trouble because he escaped three times. And that's, of course, the unpardonable sin for the Department of Corrections. And so now he's 50 years old and he's still in prison. But after his third escape, when he was put into solitary confinement, he cried out to God and he was saved. 
And in the interval years, due to the generosity of a man he had never met, he managed to get a college degree as well as a seminary degree while he's still in prison. And now he's a very vibrant Christian serving the Lord. And, of course, we'd like to see him released and go out and and serve the Lord in a a wider variety. And uh, every time he'd go up for parole, he'd be turned down because of his escape uh, record. And then this past year, all of a sudden, he's released. And now he's free to serve God in whatever capacity God might have for him. So three impossible prayer requests, that is the answer to that seemed impossible, were answered just in one year. So Abraham did not look at his own life, but he believed the promise of God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And now we get to the second failure, and that's found in Genesis chapter 20. From there, wherever he was, Abraham Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived in Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. As far as I can tell, the timing here, uh, Sarah is actually pregnant with her child Isaac. And when you think of that situation, it's incredible that Abraham would do what he has done. And God had made a promise, and God, in fact, you remember that uh, in this interval here, and I'm not sure that this is a low point or or what, but anyway, when Sarah said to Abraham, doesn't look like I'm ever going to have a son, why don't you take my, my maid, my servant, and have a child by her, and he will, you know, I'll legally adopt him or something like that. And uh, he will be the heir of the family. And you remember that Abraham did that. And, of course, Ishmael was born as a result of that. And then God has come to Abraham, and we've skipped over that, and promised him, you know, this great promise again. And so Abraham says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God says, well, I am going to make Ishmael a mighty nation, but he's not the one. You're going to have a son named Isaac. And he's to be your heir. And as far as I can tell in the timing here, Sarah is now expecting Isaac. The reason I say that is because prior to this, God had appeared to Abraham about the destruction of Lot. And he said to him about a year from now, you know, you're going to have, Sarah's going to have a son. And so Abraham does this dastardly deed. Again, he puts his, the purity of his wife at risk by allowing her to be taken into Abimelech's harem. harem. God, of course, protected her, kept her uh, from Abimelech. But uh, so, and God said, return the man's wife, for he's a prophet and he will pray for you. And so when Abimelech 
confronts Abraham in verse 9. Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Now, this is the man of faith. This is the man who went out not knowing where he was going. This is the man who believed the promise of God that he would have a son when he was almost a hundred years of age. And now, in a moment of weakness, more than a moment, but a period of weakness, he compromises, he himself lies, and he puts his wife in a very morally dangerous position because he's a man who is weak in faith. You might think that Abraham would have learned his lesson back in Genesis chapter 12 down in Egypt. But he doesn't. He falls flat on his face again. How weak and small Abraham appears to us here. Not only is he willing to give up Sarah to protect himself, but he does it in the light of God's promise and in the fact that, as far as I can tell from the timing, that, that Sarah is at that time expecting the son Isaac. And we wonder, how can this be? And now we come to the third high point, and that's found in chapter 22. And that's God's command to, to Abraham to take Isaac, his son, and God is very explicit. He says in 22 verse 2, Take your son, your only son, Isaac. God ignores Ishmael because he's talking about the son of promise. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And I acknowledge to you this morning that I approach this episode with fear and trembling because I know that God often calls us to practice what we preach. And I look at this, and this is an incredible act of faith on Abraham's part. This, in my opinion, supersedes greatly the first two high points of leaving Canaan. It's, I mean, leaving Haran. It's one thing to do that or to believe the promise of God when you don't see how it can work out. But now God is calling upon him to do something, namely to sacrifice the son of promise. And so Abraham is faced with this, this problem. Here is the son of promise, and here is the command to sacrifice him. It doesn't make sense. How, would God, how could God possibly call me to sacrifice the son which he had promised to give me and he gave me in my old age when Sarah's womb was barren? Well, we have the comment on this, how he did this, found in Hebrews chapter 11. Beginning with verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. <clears throat> and here apparently is how Abraham resolved that question in his mind. 
he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham looks at the command of God and he looks at the promise of God and they they seem totally in opposition to one another and he, he is tempted to think, how can this be? And apparently the writer of Hebrews, speaking under the divine guidance of the Holy Spirit, says Abraham believed that God would raise him from the dead. The issue is this. Are we willing to believe the promises of God regardless of the circumstances that we're in or that we're called to be in? Our pastor in my home church back in Colorado Springs a couple of months ago made this statement and I wrote it down and I thought, this is a biblical principle I've got to remember and pass on. And the statement he made was this, the promises of God are as real as the circumstances you were in. The promises of God are as real as the circumstances you're in. And God, in fulfilling his promise, is well able to overcome the circumstances. And Abraham looked at the circumstances and the command of God, but he also looked at the promise of God And to Abraham, the promise of God in Isaac shall your seed be called. And he believed the promise of God. And so he was able to almost execute the command of God to sacrifice his son. Essentially, he did that. When he raised the knife to stab his son, he was essentially doing that. And you remember that God stayed his hand so that he would not do that. But Abraham did the ultimate act of obedience. So what lessons can we learn from these three instances, high points of Abraham's faith and the low points in his life? First of all, as you read the 11th chapter of Hebrews, which is often called Faith's Hall of Fame, you see only Abraham's faith. You do not see his sin that's recorded in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20. And why is this true? Why is nothing uh, mentioned about the low points in Abraham's life? And the answer is found just in chapter 10 of Hebrews, verses 17 and 18, where uh, the writer says, Then he, that is God, adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Why do we not see a record of Abraham's failures in the New Testament? Because God has said, I will remember your sins no more. This is the promise of the gospel to us, dear friends. Some of us can think back and we cringe when we think back of some of the episodes in our lives. And we realize how small and lacking in faith and maybe even active disobedience to God we were at those times. And oftentimes we think that God is still holding those against us. But the opposite is true. He said, your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's God's promise to you. 
He will not remember your sins against you. He will remember them no more. To use the metaphor, he's wiped the slate clean. That's the first lesson that we can learn from Abraham's failures. What can we learn from his faith? Well, we learn, first of all, that faith is the gift of God. When we see Abraham's weakness in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, we realize that these high points of faith were not just because Abraham was such a noble man, such a visionary, such a great uh, man of faith. No, Abraham was not a great man of faith. Abraham's faith was a result of God's grace at work in his life. Now, grace, we might think, is a concept. By grace, you are saved. But, but grace has a variety of meanings. And one of those meanings is the help and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit in one's life. And we can see instances of that in the New Testament. But let me read you a quote from a Dutch commentator writing on, on this account uh, in his commentary on Genesis. His name was Charles Alders. And he said, it became evident that even more clearly than the first failure, that is, now he's commenting on the failure recorded in, in the 20th chapter, he says it becomes uh, evident that even more clearly than the first failure in chapter 12, that Abraham's courage and strength of faith were in no sense his own, or his own merit, or his own virtue. They were totally the fruit of God's grace and faithfulness. And so you may be thinking, I could never have the faith of Abraham. And that's right, you couldn't. None of us could. And Abraham could not have either had that faith. Every instance of the act of faith on Abraham's part was due to the grace of God working in him. God comes to him and he puts before him a challenge. Go out to a land and I will show you. Believe that you will have an heir. Sacrifice your son. And so God puts this gigantic act of faith, this challenge of faith before Abraham. And he doesn't wait to see whether or not Abraham is going to screw up his faith enough to do it. But God, through the Holy Spirit, gives him the grace to exercise that kind of faith. All is of God. Whenever you have done some heroic exercise of faith, don't pat yourself on the back. And say, look what a man or a woman of faith I am. Say, how great is the grace of God. God will no longer count your sins against you. God will give you the grace to exercise the faith that he wants you to exercise. Let's pray. Our Father, we, on the one hand, we're deeply challenged by Abraham's heroic actions of faith recorded in these three instances. And Lord, we are sort of embarrassed by his acts of failure because we realize that Abraham was one of us and we could have done the very same things. So I pray that you would help us to learn the lessons from Abraham's life. I'm sure there are many more, but these two lessons, that you did not remember Abraham's failures. And you gave him the grace to exercise the faith that you challenged him to exercise. 
Lord, would you do the same for us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.